Hi everyone, this is Work Appropriate and I'm your host, Anne Helen Peterson. People who make podcasts listen to podcasts. They have formats that they love and that they try and emulate. And one thing I love in a chat podcast, which is basically what work appropriate is, only we're chatting about work questions, is recurring guest stars. Familiar voices that become a fixture in, in this case, the work appropriate extended universe. But this is also someone that you know has given good advice in the past and you're eager to hear from them in the future. We're going to have a few recurring guest stars here at Work Appropriate, and if there's a past host that you'd really like to come around again, just drop us an email. But today, I'm thrilled to welcome back the person who gives some of the best no-bullshit management advice in the business, the hero of one of our most popular episodes. My name is Melissa Nightingale. I am a founder and partner at Raw Signal Group, and Raw Signal Group builds better bosses. We've worked with thousands of leaders and hundreds of organizations around the world to help level up their leaders. One of the things we talked about last time is how formal management training has really gone by the wayside. Like there was just very little understanding of how to train people to be better bosses. And so it makes sense that a lot of the follow-up questions that we received were about, okay, you talked a lot about how to be a better manager, but how do I be a better manager? (laughs) So we'll get to these questions in just a minute, but Melissa, in your job, What's the number one problem that you hear from people who want to be better bosses? The number one thing we hear from bosses is I don't know what I don't know, right? I know that I want to be better at this and I know that I have like maybe two or three tools that sort of kind of work, but I am terrified of putting those tools down and trying something different because I actually don't even have any idea Mm. what thing I would try. And so a lot of the problems that we see in terms of sort of how managers show up in the role is because like, There's one, the like, I am aware that I am not doing the thing as well as it could be done, but the fear of these are the tools I've got. And until you give me something else, I really like, I don't want to put them down, even if they're not working in service of me, or even if they're not working in service of my team. Yeah. You know, it actually kind of reminds me of parenting that when people realize they're like, oh, I like, this isn't working, but also if I stop doing this and I don't know what the better solution is, then everything's just going to be chaos. Yeah, so much of the work that we do is just sort of resolving that fear and saying, okay, like let's let's put some other tools in the toolkit first and then go from there. But so many, I think folks start with the like, I, I already know that I don't know entirely what I'm doing and I would like to feel more confident, but that confidence comes from, you know, from knowing what I'm doing. So this is a difficult question, but can anyone be a better boss? fundamentally, like, we feel like the worst thing that we do for people is we say, like, you either have it or you don't. You're good at management or you're not. You're a natural born leader or you're not. And that that sort of context in terms of, like, how we come up and what messages we receive about whether we're likely to be good at this or likely to be bad at this is entirely unhelpful. And so fundamentally, like, most folks are capable of learning new skills. And once you break management down from the, like, big blob concept of like, I want to be better at managing to, I want to be better at giving feedback. I want to be better at having like challenging conversations. I want to be better at setting deadlines. I want to be better at like actually ensuring that we're going to hit those deadlines. Like once you break it down into pieces, it's much easier to get better at it. But when it's that giant blob, it's really hard to improve because it's insurmountable when it's, when it's 37 skills all rolled into one. Right. And I think sometimes too, management is perceived as like the most visible component of management, which is like, 
I'm good at starting a meeting, right? <laughs> like that, that somehow is like, if you have aptitude for like starting a meeting or starting a Zoom call, then somehow you're perceived as a good manager. Like that is the most like discernible management skill. When, as you said, it's actually 37 other skills that people might have incredible aptitude at, but that is not immediately legible as a, as a management skill. The one we get all the time is vacation requests. I'm like, I don't know bosses who spend their entire day doing vacation requests, but it's the one that comes up really frequently for folks. They're like, I don't know if I can be great at management. I'm just like, I don't know. I don't want to like sit and review vacation requests all day. I'm like, who, like what boss does, the, no boss has that as their actual job. But I think there's this perceived notion of like, I, I, I'm so far from knowing what the day-to-day involves that I just imagine it's somebody sitting there with a rubber stamp being like, yes, you can go on vacation or no, you can't. It's like, it makes me think of, I don't know, like a movie that has like, um, like depiction of clerks in a workplace where they have a stamp that's like approved, approved. Like that's somehow your fundamental management skill. Yeah. And like, if you talk to bosses like day in, day out, they're like, I spend maybe like a half a percent of my year reviewing vacation. Like it's just, it's just not that time consuming. Right. Right. So the thing that I love about the questions today is that none of them are industry specific. So wherever you find yourself being a boss, there is going to be something here in these questions that you can use. First up, we're going to hear a question from Holly. I just graduated my PhD and landed my dream job as a tenure track professor. Now I'm finding myself learning a new set of skills, including how to manage master's and PhD students. I know how I prefer to be managed and advised, but I also know that that style doesn't work for everyone. How do I transition from being the one doing the work to being the one managing the work? And how do I match my managing style to the person who's in front of me? So I'll say, first of all, that like I said that none of these questions are industry specific, as in all of the answers to the questions can be applied broadly. Like we, ha- we have people telling us which industries they're in. But I also appreciate that this question asker comes from academia and is acknowledging that management is part of the skill set, right? Because that is something that is often actually not acknowledged within academia, that people are doing management when they are advising or they're overseeing a group of PhD students. Even acknowledging that overseeing students is is management, like that this person is already in AP management. So, Melissa, what do you think about this person's question about matching management styles to individual employees or advisees? I'd, I'd offer a layer of nuance, right? I think the the often when we're managing, we've got this idea of like if we just like if I'm a blue and they're a blue, then like it's going to be easy. But if I'm a blue and they're a purple, it's going to be hard. And like there's an entire mm. cottage industry around like. What color are you? What leadership style? Like, there's just a bunch of that. In reality, if you are starting from a strong foundational management set of skills, it feels more like tailoring and less like matching. Because mm. if you think about the great bosses that you've had, either like in your own career or like a theoretical great boss out there, those great bosses aren't limited by hiring a team that looks and acts and thinks just like them. Those great bosses are able to bring the best out of that team and get them working together. And in order to do that, like fundamentally, it's about bringing sort of different skill sets, different perspectives, different abilities in order to like sort of put those things into practice in the organization without having to, to be a clone, right? Or, or manage a team of clones. I think the thing that Holly's got right there is that your starting point for a lot of leaders is like, I already know how to manage myself, right? I, I was successful. I got my PhD, like somewhere along the lines, I have figured right. out what works for me. 
I think the the neat part about the way the question's being asked is like, I fundamentally understand that what works for me may not work for everybody else. And that's a phenomenal jumping off point for managing a team. Because once you've got that in mind that like, like it may make sense in my head, but even though I'm like, it, it is clear to me, it may not be clear to the person across from me. That's a really good starting point. So one thing that I think often happens when someone's new to management is they understandably think the first step is to ask the people that they're managing, how do you want to be managed? Yeah. But I think a lot of times people don't know how they want to be managed. So how would you approach that question? I think there are universals in terms of things that help bosses and, and their employees succeed, right? It's like, am I clear on what I'm supposed to be doing? Do I understand any of the broader context around it, right? Like, do I, do I sort of have the why of what I'm doing clear? Do I have an idea of what the expectations are from my boss? Am I getting feedback along the way? Do I understand the opportunities for growth? Like, those aren't about whether you're blue or purple or, like, you're a yellow personality. Those are about, mm. like, fundamental components that we need in order to sort of have satisfaction at work. So, Holly, let's say that she herself was someone who benefited from monthly check-ins when she was doing her research, right? She liked to not have a ton of contact because that stressed her out. How does she ascertain the amount of contact that her advisees actually want and need, even if like the advisees maybe are want like they they want to say something that pleases her? Do you know what I'm saying here? Like there's a mismatch in like how someone perceives being a good employee might be and what they actually need to be their best self at work. Yep. I mean, here, like, I'd say, like, there's wonderful research that's on Holly's side in terms of sort of check-ins being a really strong predictor of employee engagement and also Mm. thriving in the role that, like, that we're not sort of making it up person by person, that we have best practices because we've been studying organizations and humans in organizations for a really long time. And one of the things we found is that, like, particularly if you're in an organization where the context is changing relatively frequently, right? Like I I mostly work with startups and tech organizations and the the context changes very, very fast in terms of the expectations of the organization. But basically figuring out like when you're doing a check-in with your employee, like a good gut check is how often are you surprised and how often are they surprised? Mm. If you are coming out of a one-on-one with your direct report and you feel like completely blindsided or like something is, is they were working on a project and it's like way off of where you expected it to be, that's right. a good sign that your that your monthly check-in might need to be bi-weekly. And similarly, if you're having bi-weekly check-ins with your person, but every time you come in, they're like, well, you know, they're having like a strong change response to some of the things that are coming up where they're like, I either didn't know that information, I've now spent a week working on this project and like it actually got shit canned at the last meeting and nobody told me. Like that type of strong change response is also often an indicator that maybe your bi-weekly check-in needs to be weekly. Um, there are some good rules of thumb in terms of like managing managers. Like once you're managing senior folks or once you're managing managers, those check-ins are often less frequent. So most organizations, like when you're when you're brand new to the workforce, your check-ins need to be more frequent because you're likely to hit a wall much faster than if you've been at it for a little while. So as some sort of practical advice for someone in Holly's position, whether they're in academia or not, the first time that they're meeting with people that they're managing, do you have like a, a script that is useful for getting the, the conversation started, trying to figure out, you know, what kind of management style works best for, for different people? I mean, I think it's really helpful, particularly if it's like the first one-on-one that you've ever had, either with a new report because they're new to your team or with like, it may be the first time that that person is in the workforce 
and ever having a one-on-one with their boss at all, it can be really helpful to say like, here's what this time is for, right? Here's what this time is for. And like, particularly in an environment where it matters that it's research-backed, it's helpful to say out loud that it's research-backed, right? That that when we're sort of pulling from a like, the data says like, this is important and we're going to, we're going to sort of pull forward and honor the fact that this is an important component in not only our management relationship specific to the two of us, but also broadly in terms of your success within the organization. And so for many folks, like it's really helpful to say, like, here's what this time and space is for. And if you want it, if you want to include some status checks, great. Like have that conversation up front. I'm going to check in on your project. We're going to talk about how it's going. This is a space for us to talk about any blockers. Or if it isn't, say out loud, this is not a space for us to talk about blockers. That's going to happen in some other meeting at some other time. But I think specifically for folks who are starting out, one of the things that's awkward is like, if we're just sitting there and we don't know what that time is for, then I can't like, to your point, it's very hard for me to say like, here's, here's what I need from you, boss. The power dynamic, like really militates against me saying, here's what I need from you, boss. Right, right, right. Especially since like, I don't know if, if you're in a setting like this, or maybe it's your first job or one of your first jobs, or your previous jobs haven't had a manager situation like this, you you feel like any time that you have a one-on-one that, like, there's a weird power dynamic, you're being held to account in some way. Like, if you can establish the terms of, like, this is a time when it's actually acceptable and encouraged to talk about what what we're struggling with, what we're succeeding in, those sorts of things, setting the terms very clearly would be so useful. And in terms of superpowers, like many bosses and their direct reports find that it like takes the stress level way down when we've got a shared agenda. Like if we have a shared agenda and we both know the, like just the broader context around like, what are we here to talk about? What things are going to come up? I said last week I was going to do this thing. Like it's now on the agenda. I can anticipate that we're going to talk about that or no, like just having that structure sort of carries a lot of that awkwardness. And sort of like just releases, I think, a lot of the tension going into those discussions. Totally. I have had so many awkward, what I now understand as like one-on-one manager check-ins where they'd be like, how's it going? And I'd be like, great. What are we talking about? You know what I mean? Like I just, I, it didn't, I didn't know that this was actually supposed to be the time when we were talking about these other things. So I would defer or deflect to try to make the conversation end. And that is why it wasn't a very good (laughs) one-on-one. But I think like a lot of bosses are in that spot. And then you end up with employees who are like, I don't want a one-on-one. Like it's, yes. it's been awkward enough in my last job that when I go into my new job yes. and my boss says we do one-on-ones, be like, I would like to opt out. Is there a way I can yes. just not have them? Um, and we come back to that core element of like how you're going to succeed in this role is if you've got like enough context about what's going on in order to do it. And like a place that's a safe space to ask questions if you have them that like sometimes don't suit a group setting, which is like, I think this project doesn't matter is a hard thing to say in front of like all of your colleagues who are working on that project, right? Like we just, we just need some room for those things. But again, like we, we sort of shoot ourselves in the foot when we take a thing that is very useful and we don't give it enough structure to have it be able to do its job. 100%. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Shopify. That is the best kind of notification. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes a reality. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. 
whether you're selling cross-stitched pillows or succulents, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. Shopify covers every sales channel from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. And it even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. What's incredible to me about Shopify is no matter how big you want your business to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take it to the next level. Now it's your turn to get serious about selling and try Shopify today. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash workappropriate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash workappropriate to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash workappropriate. Our next question is all about the feelings that come with management, Mm -hmm. but maybe we can also get into the reason for those feelings. This is from Christine. I have a direct report who is demonstrating an inability to retain training or job-specific information. After a few months of training and retraining, I found that I'm now resentful and annoyed by the person all of the time because I feel so bogged down by them. How can I stop letting this person get under my skin while I have to continue to coach, delegate to, and support this person? All right. So, Melissa, I think we have to take as an assumption that firing this person is not in the the menu of options. Hey, why? I mean, maybe, maybe it is in the menu. But I just feel like if they're asking, what do I do if I can't – I'm so resentful and annoyed – I don't know. What do you think? Is firing in the, the the menu of options here? I would say like the thing that's really clear from outer space, like without knowing this person, their direct report, or like the specific nuance of the situation, the thing that's clear from very far away is that the status quo can't continue. Yeah. We are not in a good spot right now. Yeah. And how we got to that spot, I can tell 600 stories about how we might have gotten to that spot. But where we are right now is one of the like, this situation can't hold. Yeah, something's got to give here. This reminds me of something you said in our last episode where you said, if something doesn't make sense, get really curious. So even though Christine didn't ask us how to deal with this employee's performance, what should we be curious about here? First thing I would say is that like, it should never feel good as a boss to have an employee on your team who's failing. Yeah. Like if that starts to feel good, you should hang up the manager hat. Do you know what I mean? Like there's like a right. million bad boss stories out there. And like if you are actively being someone's bad boss story, like stop it. Stop. Like if someone is failing on your team and you're like, why does it feel bad that someone's failing on my team? It's because fundamentally like your whole job, the purpose of you being in the organization is to help not only like your team thrive, but your team thrive in the context of the organization thriving and, and the way that you accomplish that is you help the individuals on the team be successful. And so, like, if you're if you're outside of that, if you're out of integrity with that, like, it's going to sound harsh, but it should feel bad. Yeah. Because it's yeah, the yeah, opposite yeah. of what we're asking you to do. Right. And I think probably Christine's annoyance is in some ways probably annoyance with herself. And she doesn't know where to put it. Does that make sometimes sense? There's, sometimes there's pieces of that, right? Which is that, yeah. like... Uh, 
I mean, I think the, the question is like, if the person genuinely can't succeed in the role, then we have a very bad hiring process for the organization. Mm, like right. if you hired someone and trained them and onboarded them and put them into the role and like gave them a name tag and gave them business card, like if we're, if we're at the end of all of that and at no point along the way have we discovered that like this, this role cannot be done by this person. And I, I know like we're taking it as face value that, okay, like that's the way the question came in. And so like, that's what we're going to take at face value. But if we're there at face value, that is a failure of a hiring process. And we should do the work internally as the boss and the organization to learn the lessons of how we got there so that when we're hiring again for this role, we've got clarity about whether the person coming in, like we, we don't want to be in, like I've seen this movie and I know the ending, like that's a bad spot to be in terms of hiring for a role, particularly after a failed hire. Yeah. Maybe the better way to think about this is she is annoyed and resentful at the hiring process and the entire structure of how someone like this would have landed in this position. You know, it might be this individual's fault, but it might also be the fault of the system that placed them here without the skills to for do sure. what is and necessary. And in both directions, right? Like yeah. we, we may have an employee who was brought in with an ill-defined role, which is like yep. it happens, right? Not every organization is phenomenal at writing really clear and crisp job descriptions. And so sometimes you've got someone who's coming into a really squishy role, which is like, we need you to be the office manager. And you're like, what does that entail? They're like, manage the office. And you're like, cool. That like really doesn't tell me very much, but okay, let's give it a go. And then you find that like through the course of it, you're like, oh, that's actually a really different job than what I thought I was applying for and thought I was getting myself into. Right. Or people who conceive of something like office manager as an entry-level job, because usually the pay is commiserate with an entry-level job, when really the skills of an office manager are very sophisticated. Yes. And, and, and you've yeah. got like 600 people who need things from you at any given moment, right? right. And, then, and, and varied things. It's not like the 600 people all need the same thing. They all need different things. Yes. And so maybe if you were good at like ordering office supplies, you're not necessarily good at fielding requests from 12 different people who forgot how to access the intranet. Like those are different skill sets. So that's probably, that's probably part of what's at work here. But then I also think about this question that we got a couple of weeks ago in our episode with Liz Lenz about like, you know, sometimes people are going to be annoying in your office and you kind of have to deal with that. So how do we how do we make sure that this isn't just a question of like, oh, I'm kind of annoyed by this person that I'm supervising and actually a misfit? I think your initial reaction really indicates that there's something bigger here than just mild annoyance. I think like we, we talk to bosses about firing a lot, right? It's not a, like it, it's, it's a somber topic. And like one of the things that we say to bosses before we head into conversations about firing is like, you're going to bring everything to this discussion. And like, we need to be able to talk about it and know that for many people, it's very charged, right? It's a very charged topic, but most bosses at the moment of having someone who's underperforming in their organization need more support than they've got in that moment. Mm. And the reasons it goes so badly, the reasons why like we have to basically give folks like a heads up when we're going to like, we're going to talk about the topic because it's so hot. The reason it ends up so hot is because like it goes very badly when you've got ill-prepared people dealing with underperformance and, and dealing with underperformance in an organization that doesn't support dealing with underperformance. And so when you ask the question like, it, or you sort of said, like, it's not possible to fire this person. The reason I said why not is because sometimes we've got underperformance and we have resources in the organization. We have HR counterparts. We've got our own boss. We've got folks that we can talk to about it. But we don't because it feels like I'm managing this person and this person isn't succeeding. Therefore, I'm not succeeding. Yes. And I don't want anyone to know. And so I'm going to sit with it as long as possible and wait until the last possible minute to deal with the fact that, like, I'm, I'm underwater. Things are going badly. 
and I, I like the push that we give bosses is you need to reach out for support because even if your HR counterpart says, yeah, this isn't going to work or your own boss says like, you know, that was not a good hire and let's talk about why it wasn't a good, like, whatever, whatever those folks have to say, then at least you're not going through it alone. But I think when people are in that spot and they're in that spot alone, they can get to a pretty ragey and despondent place, which is the thing that I'm responding to is that question isn't how do I help someone who's underperforming succeed in the role? How do I come up with creative solutions around like mentoring them to success? That question is like, I am very frustrated. How do I pretend I'm not? And the answer is you can't. Yeah. Uh, and the ramifications of trying to push that down, you know, they spread throughout an organization because it's not just, you know, probably this employee is pretty miserable, right? The, I mean, the worst part is that like that employee is working for for a boss who like doesn't believe that they're going to be able right. to succeed in the role. Right. It's like, it's just a shitty spot. Yeah. And, and there's also like, if they're not doing well in the role, then there are ramifications on other people on the team, you know, like the, the tendrils spread out across the organization. So it is not an individual or a manager managing problem. Like this is something that is much more to do with the entire structure. And so you can't just ignore it and pretend like, okay, I just have to figure out how to not be frustrated by this person. And I think your advice here, your your specific advice to reach out for support is hard because like you said, it makes someone feel like, oh, I'm failing as a manager or I'm failing as someone who's training. But that's that doesn't seem to be the case here. I mean, we don't know, right? Like, I guess I, I don't know enough to know, like, which thing is true. But I would say, like, the the piece in terms of where we are right now is that, like, this can't keep going. Yeah. And it can't keep going for the boss. It can't keep going for the employee. And it can't keep going for the organization. And once you've checked all of those boxes, then then we need some other ideas. Our next question is actually, in some ways, a callback to a question we had in our last episode where you were on as our, as our co-host. So that question was about a young employee who seemed to be working at all hours of every day despite assurances that she wasn't expected to do so. And this question asked her noted that her supervisee was black and acknowledged that perhaps she felt the need to be twice exceptional. So our next question, again, is similar to that one, but it's from a different listener named Megan. Do you have any thoughts, guidance, or resources on anti-racism in the workplace for people that manage people of color? I'm white and a brand new manager. My report is a black lady who is really good at what she does, but who also has room to grow and whose reputation seems to me to have been negatively impacted by implicit racial bias. She wants more recognition and has said she'd like to work with me on that. Our previous working relationship has been my reviewing and providing feedback on her work in a formal but non-supervisory capacity, and we've established a good rapport. She's about 20 years older than me. I don't know if this bothers her, but I'm not aware of any issues. And in fact, her greater experience in the industry is quite valuable. We work in consulting, so it's definitely small C conservative, although employees' politics skew liberal. I say this because while performance standards are deeply informed by and consistent with capitalist white supremacy, even the white boomers that I report to appreciate and support my concerns about how implicit bias affects this individual and doing what I can to avoid it and fight against it going forward. So first, I want to acknowledge that you and I are both white women and two white women advising another white person on managing a black employee. Like this is this is tricky. But Melissa, I feel like this is a common theme that you probably hear from other managers and bosses that work with you. So how how have you advised that and how have you kind of worked around the the really, I think, 
difficult racial politics of trying to advise in terms of power dynamics and implicit and explicit racial biases. So we we get this one a lot in a lot of different forms, right? We work globally and we're working with a number of organizations where like half the team is on one side of the world and the other half the team is on the other. We yep. work like in sort of areas like the US, we work in Canada, like we work in, in markets where there's a lot of sort of overlap of like, we're working together, but we have zero lived experience that mm-hmm. overlaps our expectations in terms of how we came up and and what we're facing and, and all of the assumptions that we're bringing to bear in the workforce are really different. And what we say to folks is that when you've got very limited overlapping lived experience, that is a place where you need things to be more overt in order to get the clarity that you need so that folks can thrive. And so like, if you're like the the word implicit came up, I think like at least three times in that question. And like the, the big shove is like, when you're worried about things being implicit, move them to explicit. And like, that sounds really simple. It's like, well, if we're in that spot, then like, Nobody who doesn't think like your boss or look like your boss is going to be able to succeed. And so if we want to create a different system, if we want to create structures where people can thrive who don't necessarily look like the CEO or look like the existing founding team, then we need to sort of start to capture some of those things and the why behind them, right? It's not enough to just say like, you know, we we yell in meetings. It's like, okay, well, fine, you yell in meetings, but like why, right? And like, what are we actually trying to get at? Right. And I feel like, okay, so this is consulting and it's also, a, they're ostensibly liberal. So I just, I can really imagine it's, it's not anything as overt as like, we only like a certain type of person. We don't like, we only hire a certain sort of person. It's more like, here's the management style or here's the communication style that we privilege. And no one has said that out loud, right? It's just that if you look at the way that promotions have worked over the course of the last 10 years, people who communicate, people who are present in the office, people who shoot the shit in the same way as the people in power, those people are the ones who are rising up the ladder. So how does how do we make that explicit and actually do something about it? So the, I mean there are two pieces, right? There's the there's the manager in this sort of question's own journey. Yeah. And I would decouple their own journey of learning and unlearning separate from their duty and obligation to be a, a sort of effective manager for their mm. employee. And the reason I yeah. think it's really important to decouple those is because we when they are blurred, we are asking a thing that's really unfair of that employee, right? If we are asking and not paying for DEI education for that boss to come from that employee, then we are well outside of what is actually within scope for their role. Yeah. Obviously, assuming that like the consulting that they're doing isn't DEI consulting. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> right. And so when, when we decouple those and we say, okay, there's learning and unlearning to do on this piece of things, but the obligation and the duty to the employee is to create those structures and to say, like, I may not have clarity in terms of, like, what the expectations look like within the organization. I may need to go have some hard conversations with my own boss about, like, mm-hmm. I got promoted, but this person who's been here longer didn't get promoted. And can you help me understand, not necessarily a fighty place, but a, like, genuine, like, without understanding what the next steps are in terms of being considered for promotion, being considered for that visibility that that employee is asking for, you can't be an effective manager for that person. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no way that you can provide, you can't turn around and provide that clarity for that employee if you don't have it for yourself. Right. I think this person also, this manager has to, is probably balancing some interesting acknowledgement and awareness that they have benefited from those systems of power and trying to dismantle them. But then also like 
this is the hard thing with privilege is that you're like, am I actually myself willing to give up some of my privilege and position, right? And and that's what I think oftentimes white people struggle with the most is they're like, yeah, I want more people of color in positions of management, but also I don't, I should also be at management, right? Do you know and, what I mean? <laughs> and the clarity of knowing like, it may be less awkward for you to ask those questions. Like, if, again, if you don't yeah. have the clarity around like the person like, through the question, is doing good work, right, is valued within the organization. So, okay, if they're doing good work and valued within the organization, then we really need to understand the broader context around, like, how does visibility happen in terms of, like, accolades for, for that good work that's happening and all of that value that's, that the organization is accruing, like, and experiencing, then, then where, where are things falling down along the way? And again, like, from a position of relative privilege within the organization and of being that person's boss, the boss has an obligation to go find out, right? Yep. Yep. And I do think that this person is really thinking too about how can I create structures moving forward that don't replicate what has happened in the past? And I think that 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 is useful in terms of like, I don't want to perpetuate the way that we have hired and promoted in the past. I want to be an agent of change. And in order to do that, they have to do the hard work. Right. It can't just be like, I'm going to ask people of color about what we can do better or whatever. Like they have to do that hard work of also talking with their bosses. And that's a lot. But I think it also like if you are actually committed to anti-racist hiring and managing processes, that is the hard work that's necessary. Yep. Clarity is an act of inclusion. And if you don't have that clarity, then nobody else is going to either. So there's one thing that I want to use as kind of a segue to a question, and that's Megan said in her question, performance standards are deeply informed by and consistent with capitalist white supremacy. I think most performance standards are actually very deeply informed by and consistent with capitalist white supremacy, just in terms of the way that perfectionism relates to capitalist white supremacy, the way that constant growth and like the privileging of constant productivity, all those things. And we got a handful of questions from listeners about performance evaluations and how to do them well, which... I think you know, the implicit part there, I know that we're saying implicit so much in this episode, the implicit part is like, how do we do a performance evaluation that is not that, right? That is not deeply informed by and consistent with capitalist white supremacy while also not being just like, what are your feelings? So <laughs> what do you think the pitfalls of performance evaluations are and what is a better way to do them? Okay, so like great performance reviews start 364 days before you're sitting across from someone. <laughs> yes. And when you think about it, you're like, okay, like, what does that mean? Right? Like, is it just a calendar invite that goes off and it's like, all right, start. No, great performance reviews start 364 days before because like, we're giving feedback the whole way along. We've got clarity of expectations the whole way along. We've set clear goals within the organization the whole way along. And we've got a conversation happening around what growth looks like in the organization the whole way along. When you look at performance reviews, how they happen in like the vast majority of organizations, they happen an hour before the performance review yes. and the person sitting across from you. And your boss is like, I've got 27 of these to do. And I'm going to like the night before, like maybe, yes. maybe the night yeah. before, yes. I'm going to just like work my way through them and like I'll copy paste the comments and change your name so that you know that like this one's specific to you and your like trajectory, like the, the <laughs> way that we, like we cram for them like their exams and it's so, it's such a missed opportunity. Like when they're great, it should be the culmination of an entire year of management that's happening. When they're shitty, it's like 15 minutes before you get into the room, somebody's like, 
good work, like keep going. You're like, right. What do I do with good work? Keep going. Like that's not helpful. <laughs> like even the good ones, right? Like that should be a good moment. And people have walked out of those reviews and quit because like it doesn't tell you anything. Right, right. They walk out of the review and they're like, this person has no idea what I'm doing or what I'm struggling with. Like this is my sign to leave. I, I feel like performance reviews are this weird band-aid for people who don't manage at all right? Or who aren't doing any sort of consistent management. And they're like, this is how we're going to show that we're doing the work by having, I don't know, it's essentially like finals, right? Like we're going to take finals on management and no one's done any of the studying. So everyone fails, right? Like that it's just a completely meaningless exercise. Whereas if it's done correctly, what it feels like is you stop in in your professor's office at the end of the semester and you have a free-flowing conversation for an hour, and you don't realize at the end when they say, you've passed with flying colors, right? Like, you've just taken the final exam, and you're on the same page. You've been learning all year, and your professor has also been learning along with you. Like, it just, it's a different sort of dynamic, but we use it as this this very weird, totally meaningless performance of performance. Does that make sense? Yes. And sometimes it's worse than that. Sometimes we use it like as a blunt force tool for people (laughs) where like, you're like not doing well in the organization. We want you to know that really clearly. And so we're gonna make it as sharp and harsh as possible. The result is like many people going through performance reviews feel like there's, there's just tons of stuff that gets delivered, like that they didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And that feeling of being blindsided, like so many folks come out of reviews being like, you're talking about something that happened eight months ago and I could have fixed it. Like eight months ago, had you told me, right. that was like a, a resolvable thing. But like, I'm now working with like conspirators who kept information from me for eight months that yeah. I needed in order to do my job well. And when you talk to bosses, like, why did you hold it for eight months? Many of them point to, well, the review was coming up. And I didn't do the review was like in December. So I didn't want to make mm-hmm. a big deal about it. And you're like, but you did make a big deal about it. It was a big enough deal that you then wanted to talk about it in the review. And so I think for a lot of bosses, it's very helpful backstop to say anything you're going to talk about in the review, you should have talked about outside of the review. Yes. Like there, there shouldn't be a piece of information that's coming to your person for the first time when they're sitting across from you in that review. And when I talk about like the 364 days before, that's a lot of the work that we're doing ahead of time. Not every organization does them. And a lot of bosses have pushed back and a lot of employees have pushed back and said, like, this tool is done, like, it's used so badly in organizations that I just don't think we should use it anymore. Yeah. I fall on the side of, like, it can be done well, but I also am a realist, which is, like, it can be done well. And a lot of the time it is not being used well. When you were talking about, like, bringing up something in the performance view that happened eight months ago, I think of, like, how mad I would be if I was in a fight with a friend or a partner and they brought up something I did eight months ago that they had not brought up at the time. Just rude, right? Like, tell me, give me a chance to like deal with it and make our friendship stronger. But instead you just sat on it and let it fester. And like, I'm an adult, like I'm, unless you're employing children, which like, you know, labor law, like don't, but like, if you're, if like assuming that your workforce is made up of adults, then you have to like manage them like they're adults, right? And managing them like they're adults means again, like if you're pissed off about something that happened tell me that you're pissed off about something that happened and don't sit on it for eight months. That's like so vile. How can we package this advice in a way that makes it feel less overwhelming to someone who maybe has only known the style of performance review that's every six months? And it just feels like, you mean I have to essentially performance review every two weeks? Like, how do we make that something that seems approachable? 
Oh, so like when, I mean, when I say it's like the culmination of all your bossing tools, right? Like it just performance rooms are bad because like if all my bossing tools are non-existent, then like I don't have anything that's, that like is the sum total. But when your bossing tools are in place, like it means that I'm having regular one-on-ones to like the Holly question, right? I'm having regular one-on-ones with my people the whole way along. I've got clarity of the work that we're trying to get done. Like I understand what the outcomes are that we're driving toward. And when I'm checking in on those, it's really easy to say like, you know, at the end of six months, like, how are we doing? Well, I literally have a document. I have a shared agenda of the like questions and problems we were trying to solve in January. And now that we're in June, like I can measure the distance. That should be a cool moment as a boss. Like if that yeah. gets you, if that gets you excited, like good, you're in the right, you're in the right line of work, right? Like that growth should be a thing that you're really excited about. And even if there are places in there of like, Hey, like we, in February, like set out to do a thing and like, it didn't happen for a whole set of re- whatever, but like, we knew that, that we were sort of driving toward a thing and it didn't happen. Like, okay, well then we can have that conversation too about like how we're rolling that into a change of approach for the ne- the rest of the year. But when it's good, it is a tool for reflection, right? Like at its core, it is a tool for like synthesis and reflection in work that almost never provides you that opportunity. Like if you think about so many people's job, it's like run to the meeting, next Zoom call, like this Zoom call ran over, like fuck you, you don't get to eat lunch, like jump to the next, like it's, we are jumping between things. When it's good, it is this like, just like sit and think about what it's been and like either feel really good about what it's been or make a plan for what it's going to be. But like, it can be good is like my summary is it can be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also like, do you want to have this incredible moment for synthesis and reflection with each of your managees? Or do you want to have a horrible night copying and pasting performance reviews twice a year? Like, which which sounds better? I literally had a boss once where I was doing, it was like a self-eval, right? It was like, fill out like your whole year annual performance review, do this deep self-eval work, submit it, then you're going to come together with your boss, they're going to do their their piece of it. And you'll come together and talk it through. And I had like been working my butt off, just like was so proud of the work that I was doing, but also like really putting in the work. And so I wrote the self-eval, but like put in time and effort and energy to like really get it. Yep. Showed up into the meeting. My boss handed me his notes and across the top of my self-eval was the word agree with an exclamation point. <laughs> did you leave that job? I did leave that job. <laughs> I'm glad you love that job. And that would also be my advice to anyone who is in that situation. But also, I think that this has given us so much to think about and reflect in terms of like, do you want to put in the work and have the entire experience be better? Or do you want to have the entire experience of management feel like crap over and over and over again? And sometimes literally what we're paying you for. (laughs) If you're like worried about like, oh, I have to like pull together these performance reviews and it's hard. That's why we're paying you. Right. And I think that like at, at its heart, gets to a real tension in so many aspects of our culture, which is that sometimes we don't want to put in that work that yields long-term rewards because we, there's just, we need to, we're like, if it doesn't make things better right now, then it's not worth the time. But all of the advice that we've talked about today is about putting in real dedicated work that can actually change the structure of your organization can change the structure of your relationship with your the people that you're managing and all of it will make work feel better. Yeah. And and that's our hope, right? (laughs) Oh, like a lot of my comment to bosses is like, I'm going to make you slower and I refuse to apologize for it. At first, Mm. we're going to slow you down a little bit, but like slowing you down will speed you up right now. You're going very fast, but you're tripping every two steps. So we're just going to slow it down a little bit and like get some of the structure in place. And then you can go back to going as fast as you were going, but stop falling over your feet. 
Melissa Nightingale, once again, this is the best advice. And we are so happy that you decided to come back on Work Appropriate. Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? People can find me at World's Best Newsletter. We write about management and leadership uh, every two weeks at worldsbestnewsletter.com. And then I'm at Shappy on Twitter. I allow you to have World's Best Newsletter, even though I also write a newsletter because I just love the, I love the bombast of World's Best Newsletter. People don't forget about it. We should change it. We can change it to like World's Best Newsletter, like except AHPs. (laughs) Please. That's all I ask for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Work Appropriate. If you've got a workplace quandary you need help figuring out, get in touch. You can find submission guidelines at workappropriate.com or send us a voice memo with your question to workappropriate at crooked.com. That's also where you can send an email telling us who you want to be another guest host or to come on the show again. Don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media on Instagram and Twitter for more original content, host takeovers, and other community events. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Work Appropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Sandra Gerard. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Allison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow. Additional production support from Ari Schwartz. And special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismer. You can follow me on Twitter at Anne Helen or on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson. You can sign up for my newsletter, Culture Study, at annhelen.substack.com. Meet us back here next week for advice on getting paid. Getting paid.